Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk about actionable stock ideas, timeless investing concepts, and the overall way that we think about investing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Go to focuscompounding.com and enter in your email to get a free watch list from Jeff every other week. And be sure to check out all of our other work where Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. I upload how-to investing videos on YouTube, and we both manage capital for investors at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to follow along. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding Podcast, sitting next to Jeff Cannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else as well. Hey, if this is the first time that you're tuning in with us, maybe it's the first time that you've come across our videos on YouTube, be sure to hit that subscribe button, thumbs this video up. If this is the first time that you are listening to our podcast, hit the subscribe button there. Follow us along or follow along with us. Uh, leave us a rating or view that goes a very long way for us. Um, to that point of it potentially being your first time with us, make sure you check out all of our work. Go to focuscompounding.com. Uh, we blog about ideas there on investing, uh, typically overlooked stocks, but sometimes there's less overlooked stocks on there. Uh, Jeff, his goal is to write up 250 plus write-ups mm-hmm. this year. Uh, so definitely check out. There's over 100 and I don't know, we should probably get exact number, but I'd say roughly 120 different ideas on there on the stocks A to Z section and other members write up ideas as well. Uh, so be sure to sign up at focusedcompounding.com. And if you do sign up, use the podcast promo code, which is the word podcast, and that'll take $10 off of the subscription price. And definitely you could cancel whenever. Uh, so definitely check us out there. Uh, so in today's video, we are going to be talking about what we're trying to get out of historical information. Okay. So one of our f- most popular podcasts is the Snap Judgments podcast because okay. people like the practicalness it gives us. Uh, they like to see what we're looking at. Um, you know, so we're always looking at historical information in there, mm-hmm. right? So maybe we could talk about, you know, what we're trying to get out of um, historical information when we are, um, you know, looking at these companies. I think it's been said mm-hmm. too that Buffett, when he gets really interested in an idea, he really just wants every single record that he could possibly find on the company's past financial results. Mm-hmm. So what are you typically looking for? Like what stands out to you? What do you like to do with all this information? Um, you know, and let's just really kind of chat about it. Sure. So I know that we both recently read, um, Inside the investments of Warren Buffett, 20 cases or whatever. Yeah, it's a good, yeah. yeah. And one of the things that I think a good conclusion that book comes to is how important seeing historical financials and just historical data in general was to Buffett making decisions about things, whether it was Washington Post, American Express, Coca-Cola, whatever, um, how consistent the results were in their past. So that's the number one thing. And I've mentioned this about like Guru Focus has a predictability score. You know, mm-hmm. The main thing is not whether the results are good or bad or something like that, but whether they're giving you a predictable picture over time, either predictable in the sense of being very flat and, um, or very cyclical or very, um, uh, or having consistent growth over time, whatever those are. So if you look at it and you go, okay, this is a company that's growing five or 6% a year, every year and having similar, uh, results otherwise. Right. Yeah. So it's like a growth company that way. It's a, a small growth company, a, a slow growth company. Um, if you're seeing that, for a brand or a food company or whatever, that tells you something. If you're seeing that there's no growth over time, it's completely cyclical, that tells you something. The, the difficult thing is when you look at the f- historical results and can't make sense of it in terms of just how predictable it is. Even in the right? Junk to Gold book about Copart, he was talking about um, 
you know, that they learn as a company that it's much better to just deliver a consistent, they, you know, yeah, they learned as a public company, and, yeah, yeah. As a public company instead yeah. of like, you know, it'd be more up and down, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, so that investors likes, you yeah, know, predictability, right? They liked like 20% a year growth instead of sometimes you grew 40%, sometimes you grew 10%. They yeah. hated that, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, I do think predictability is a very important part of it, and that's a key part for uh, Buffett looking at those results. Um, I they mentioned a few times in that book that a lot of his investments, like nine out of 10 years or 10 out of 10 years of the past 10 years, they had grown things like EPS and revenue, even just by a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so that is a common thing that we look for. One, is it profitable every single year? Does it generate free cash flow every single year? Does it have a return on equity or whatever that's adequate in each year? You kind of are looking for what now, are the bad adequate? years. Tell me that. Okay, so like 6% is not adequate. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But 10% could be adequate. Uh, 20% certainly is adequate. So it would earn, you know, uh, like the academic way of saying is it earns its cost of capital. But the way of, for us saying it is that, you know, if it reinvested all that money, it mm-hmm. could still match the market, yeah, right? Because the sure. market might do a similar number. If you're doing much worse than that single digit types of returns on equity, then that's not acceptable, right? And, and you want to know why that's happening. I was just going to say yeah. that. I mean, okay, so if it's doing 20% a year, you mm-hmm. probably want to learn why, and then you could really right. learn about the... Yeah, I mean, the durableness. I mean, there's something there that's allowing them because that's not normal. Right. Right. I mean, good companies. I mean, what do you think the average company earns? Oh, uh, that that's really complicated. So, like, if you look at the S and P 500 or something, it has a very high return on equity right now. Mm-hmm. But that's misleading because for accounting reasons about stuff of it's not counting. First of all, the return on equity gets exaggerated over time for accounting reasons under gap due to inflation. So one, it's wrong because of that. But two, also, we're using tangible things that's wrong compared to intangible things. So, I mean, the the truth is that in the very, very long run, the return on equity that you have and the return in the stock market have to be awfully close to each other. So if you get a number, this is sort of complicated, but if you get a number for a a country's stock market that tells you that it has an 18% return on equity, and then you look... And actually, the um, stock market's only compa- only had a total return, right? Dividends plus the growth in stock price of like 10% a year over the last 30 years, okay? Something's wrong because the actual number it's telling you for the stock market is probably over very long periods of time right. So that value creation in terms of the stock market is more an accurate number. So mm-hmm. somehow there is a reason why there's a big gap between what's the reported return on equity for accounting purposes and the other number you're getting some complications for things like the S&P 500 and stuff is also because they're doing this thing where they have like recurring and non-recurring things or mm-hmm. and so what you're getting is the special items are always bad items you don't have like extraordinary profit that isn't getting counted in it but you are having extraordinary basically like they write off entire divisions and things and they're not counting that you know in terms of the regular recurring results that you're sure, seeing yeah. things like that are happening and like I said also because of inflation you're getting a result from that that's misleading but it, to be honest if if a stock market if if the come if the components of an index were really having high um, teens returns on equity or something, then eventually their stock market would need to be going up by numbers like that. The sure. only way that, that wouldn't be happening is if you failed to reinvest at all. Mm-hmm. And that could be happening like recently. You just paid all out or- yeah. So obviously, if you have a, let's say you trade at 30 times earnings or something, right? And you have a 30% return on equity. Well, if you buy back your stock, you're starting at a very low earnings yield, right? So you're reinvesting in yourself at a high price to book. Like mm-hmm. Buffett talked about this with Kraft Heinz. He said, look, um, uh, it's not that Kraft had a bad business. It's that we paid so much that even though they might be earning, you know, 50% pre-tax on uh, their investment, if we paid five times book for that or 10 times book or something, then we're only making five or 10% on our investment. What did, what did they pay for it? Some incredibly high number like that. Yeah. Really? I don't, in terms of price to book. Yeah. Yeah. yeah very, very high. So if they got like a single digit um, pre-tax return. 
Whereas, yeah, the actual return that the company was getting is still very high. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's common. Uh, so the real thing is the reinvested part. So what really matters is like, what are they actually reinvesting at? And that's a good thing of like the book I was talking about is that- It's a great book. I want you to definitely read it. Yeah, because Buffett isn't really looking at, like we talked a little bit, I was just talking to you about a, a stock that has like 20 to 40% returns on equity probably. Like yeah. the worst year is maybe 20%, the best 40%. That's fine. Like 80% wouldn't help you much because you can't reinvest at rates that are that high mm. um a company normally can't so it, it, what it really matters is all the money that you're reinvesting whether it has a high return sure. so, so often it's more predictable sorts of things yeah and you see that with anything that buffett looks at so it really is number one is predictability but number two is understanding so you have to understand why so when you look at the financial results what you don't want to see is stuff that doesn't make any sense to you so if i look at it and i see a terrible year for companies in 2008 and or 2009 or 2010 and it makes sense um cyclically why they would be exposed to the economy that way that's fine so like we looked at a cement plant or something and they had very poor a monarch cement had very poor returns for like three, four, five years in a row. Mm -hmm. But that's a once in 50 years type bad experience for cement in the US. So that's okay that they're earning 5% on equity or something. Like it's okay that they're just not losing money in that period. Mm -hmm. That makes sense to me. But if I see random periods in which they're in a normal economy in which they're um, not earning adequate returns on equity, that's more of a problem. The same thing would be true like for banks that we look at. So often you can look and see that the reason why they have a low return on equity recently is they're overcapitalized. Mm -hmm. So you can see so many examples of banks where the return on assets is adequate, but they've been much less leveraged since the financial crisis than before it, then it makes sense that not that much really changed about the business. They had a lot of leverage before the financial crisis. They have a lot less leverage now. Mm -hmm. That's different than seeing like a big change in their return on assets sure. or something, right? Mm -hmm. So it's understanding what's driving it. And I think that book is good that way because it explains like, um, say Coca-Cola or something. It wasn't just that Buffett looked and said, oh, they're growing at 20% a year. It was he looked and said, oh, like almost every country except for the top few is growing its consumption its actual physical consumption of coke by a lot mm -hmm. you know he just looked at the globe and how much more they were consuming and how they were catching up more over time to countries like the u.s where it had already been high so he just saw a pattern of why their earnings per share yeah. were growing and so he's he spoken publicly about that i mean that book is great mm -hmm. because he really goes back and looks at what buffett was looking at with information that he had and tries analyzing the situation mm -hmm. um as if like you were to analyze it you know looking at it back um, you know, way back when, but no, I think that's a great book that everyone should definitely check out. What else are you trying to get out of the financial state situation or statements? Because one thing I always say about Jeff is, and I think this comes through in your writing is that you're really good at f getting the story, right? Okay. So like the numbers and translating to, f to figure the story out about the stock, right? Okay. Um, you know, like points America, for example, you, or points, uh, points, points international. international. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you were you you were talking about like the receivable or um, that they do not actually buy the points and hold them themselves. And then, right. And you the numbers told you that, mm -hmm. right? And I think you're able to find out the story a lot better than a lot of people, um, you know, are. So I mean, what are you looking for to kind of craft that story and just really understand the stock? So with, I mean, there's some risk that you can misjudge these things because you could make guesses that turn out to be wrong because it the pattern fits 
Uh, I mean, the facts fit the pattern that you think you're seeing, but they could also fit a different explanation for why it could happen. But what you generally do is you look at like the historical financials and you see something out of them and you go, okay, so what could this mean? And you guess it to what it could mean. Like, so we talked about um, Stella Jones, for instance, Mm -hmm. right? And I was noticing that their returns were relatively low without the use of debt. And then when you learn about the company, they explain that it takes nine months to season some of the wood that they have, right? And that's, so they have a very significant amount of inventory that way. So that explains what you saw already in the financial statements and it helps understand why they have such although they have such consistent returns they can't have very high returns without using some sort of financing because they can't finance those purchases yeah so with like points what was happening there is you look at it and you can see there's some source of float and float is a very common thing that you can see in the historical results because um you'll just see it over and over again that the free cash flow is way too high versus the earnings so it's mm-hmm. those sorts of things that you notice that's unusual or like what about like a return negative return on equity right so they like had that. negative uh, uh, invest a capital normally, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So uh, basically what was happening is that their the customers were financing their um, uh, their business or suppliers, however you want to put it in this case. In this case, you'd say suppliers, that airlines were, um, they were paying airlines after they were collecting cash from, from customers. So uh, when you see that, then you're, you're thinking, okay, what does this mean? And you look for information on that. The same mm-hmm. thing is like I talked about, I did write up a vitreous glass and I sort of, figured that they were holding like uh, that it was sort of on demand right Mm -hmm. and it didn't exactly say that in the uh, report that i was reading but then when i checked the inventory thing what happened is you could see in each period i checked the inventory for the inventory breaks down like the um uh, how much is finished goods and how much is like uh, raw materials and how much is work in process, that sort of thing. And it's overwhelmingly raw materials. So they're just accepting all the raw materials, all the glass that needs to be recycled. And then just on demand, they're obviously producing it and mm-hmm. selling it right away. It's not that they're holding uh, inventory speculatively there, right? So like you get the information from the accounting stuff. But if you start with looking at the historical financials to try to understand that, like why is this happening, then you can guess about what it means. Mm-hmm. If you, otherwise, if you read those notes to the financials i don't think it makes as big an impact yeah i mean they don't they don't really come out and say oh we get low returns unless we use debt because of because of it takes nine months for our our wood to dry we or like they don't come out and say oh we actually have float you know yeah that's usually true that they don't say those things yeah exactly um okay so we talked about this predictability measure Mm -hmm. and i know you've written about it and stuff like that but i mean how do you actually judge i mean when you let's say um use excel Right. Right. You input all the historical information or you mm-hmm. look at all the historical information. How do you actually judge the predictability of numbers? So I think the two easiest to judge are, uh, well, the two easiest figures that I look at usually are the return on sales. So the operating margin, the EBIT margin, um, though you can also do it for gross margin and um, the return on capital. Those are the two. And so usually with a company you want, sometimes they can both be pretty predictable. So mm-hmm. like Stella Jones, I think if I checked, I don't remember off the top of my head, I believe both will be pretty predictable. For some companies though, they won't be, uh, but one of them will be. One of them should be. That's usually the case uh, with a company that you like. Now with companies that you don't like that aren't very good businesses, it may be that neither of them are very predictable, mm-hmm. but you want to see one of them giving you a lot of um, uh, help like if you need to model it out. So whether it's, uh, sales that you could look at a number and say, okay, based on sales, I can predict this. So a good example would be like a restaurant or something. Usually you're going to see very, um, if it's a good business, if it's competitively staying in place in the same position, it's going to have a very predictable return on sales normally. Now, cyclically, some stuff's going to happen where a very bad year for restaurants, it's going to plunge by a few percent. Yeah. But you can count on that recovering and you can buy the stock on that basis. So like if it normally has a 7% EBIT margin and it goes to 3% in a recession, you can really count on that co- 
coming back unless they actually have a worse position versus other restaurants. Mm -hmm. So I think it's very predictable that way. So what I do usually with Excel is actually use the coefficient of variation, which we've talked about before, which is to actually just measure. And you, it's very easy to do this with your eyeball. So you don't need to know to do this or anything in Excel, but you can do it, which is just to measure the um, what's basically the relative standard deviation. So you take the standard deviation of the entire series of what you're looking at. If I can get 20, you know, like on SEC stuff usually goes back to 1995 now. So I can get almost 25 years of data. Mm -hmm. I get 25 years of data. I find out what the standard deviation is. I find out what the mean is. You divide um, the standard deviation into the mean and see how low that number is. It should be a fraction. So it should be zero point something. If it's one or higher, that's very, very high. And that would mean it's incredibly unstable. If it's something like 0.3 or less, then it would be pretty stable. And the most stable I've ever seen is usually around 0.1 or something like that. What types of comp type of companies? Costco is very close to yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, I don't remember off the top of my head. There are some ad agencies that are very close to that. 0 0.3 is a pretty common one for certain like leading brands. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, there are some commodity things and weird stuff like that that can be like one times. Mm -hmm. um, like, uh, yeah, some wholesale things, some contract manufacturing things, things that are very, very cyclical, yeah. What about capital allocation? So you could obviously mm -hmm. use capital or the financial statements and historical financial statements to really judge the way that management acts when it comes to capital allocation. I mean, mm -hmm. what are you typically looking for there? What sticks out to you? What do you think is a red flag? Uh, the number one thing I would say is probably just, again, consistently what are they doing? Mm -hmm. So I don't care right away as to like, is it good or bad what they're doing? Like a lot of people will look and say, okay, well, they started to buy back stock or something. We talked about buying back stock or, or whatever it might be or paying a dividend. Uh, I care more like, have they been paying a dividend for a long time or have they been buying back stock for a long time? There's something that like is a pattern that seems very predictable. Mm -hmm. So when we were talking about like points international, right? So in their case, it's that the pattern that seemed to be what you were seeing is that they would buy back stock if it exceeded um, their float. Mm -hmm. So it seemed like they wouldn't use float to buy back stock, but earned cash, actual cash that had been earned on an accounting basis, they would use to buy back stock, which is interesting because more aggressive type financial operators, say John Malone was running the company or something, would use the float to buy back the stock, yeah. right? Because it is cash that you have and you could use. But on the other hand, there are other companies that I've seen which are so conservative that they'll pile up cash even beyond cash that, that hasn't, you know, so even cash that they've earned on top of float. So it just gets a severely overcapitalized balance sheet. Here you were seeing a pattern where they were starting to uh, it seemed like each year they were starting to do that. Anytime they exceeded the amount of float they had, they would like buy back. The rest mm -hmm. of it, they actually considered surplus cash. That's very important to get into management's head about what they're thinking about. In another case, we mentioned like um, uh, a monarch cement or something. Yeah. They seem to only buy back stuff if it's at book value or below. Mm -hmm. So it seems like there's a pattern where they won't buy above book value. So, you know, seeing that sort of pattern. So, um, special dividends are really interesting. So it's like things that are super predictable in terms of they keep doing it all the time yeah. or things that are extremely unusual. Special dividends are very unusual. So uh, aggressive buybacks in one period and then not buying back at all in another is very unusual. So seeing things where like a company will buy back a lot of yeah, stock, it's like which why? I've seen. Why did they buy back yeah, aggressively then? Was that, the stock, did the stock sell off and they viewed it as an actual good allocation right. or what? Yeah. And there's some cases where I probably should have done more of that, like paid more attention to that. Um, I can think of where they wouldn't buy back. Like I can think of some companies where they wouldn't buy back any stock and then you'd see both insiders buying and aggressive stock buybacks at the same time mm -hmm. and they would only do that when they thought their stock was really cheap you know and so that sort of pattern is very different from how most companies do it right mm -hmm. most companies like they make a lot of money they buy back a lot of stock you know they have very high profits they'll just buy back a lot of mm -hmm. stock if they don't have something to do with it that's when they'll do the buybacks yeah no that's interesting and i think uh we're actually gonna uh, probably like a couple months ago we were talking to 
um, Trey, who's been on, you've been on his podcast. Yes. Uh, D- DIY investing. investing. Yep. Uh, we're talking about intercom communications and didn't mm-hmm. he say like the chairman or someone was just buying back an aggressive amount of stock in that? Yeah. And that's an interesting case because that's one where they, at least historically, we'll see this time, but historically the two family members, it's father and son, um, had their buybacks have been very well. Uh, I mean, their, well timed, the, their insider yeah. purchases have been very well timed, not, not their buybacks. Yeah. Their insider yeah, purchases. Personally. Uh, buying back a ton of stock. Yeah, buying a, yeah himself, and so I think he's going to come on the podcast in the next uh, week or two. We're going to talk about it. So, okay, intercom communications. Yeah, yeah. and, and so th- that's a good example of like. Um, but see, the difficult thing with intercom, right, is that there's so much change with it because they did a a merger with a company that was bigger than them. Basically, took on a lot of debt and merged with a company that's bigger than them. But what is interesting about that is you can still see in a company like that if you find enough data about the past, like that company tends to then pay down their debt to a certain degree, right? Or we talked about Wabtech one time mm-hmm. like even if management wasn't telling you you get the impression that they wouldn't leave debt that high that they mm-hmm. paid down a little bit but they would never get to no debt just because that's the pattern that they kept having and then there are companies that will do that where they'll use debt to buy something that's important because you want to know whether they'll issue stock sure. the thing that you're always afraid of is that they'll do a big merger yeah. where they issue a lot of stock and so sometimes you can see in the past record of management uh, of a company that they haven't done that that's the other problem with not having a management team in place for a long time like that book um on the inside the investments of warren buffett mm-hmm. what's interesting about that too is it does mention how rarely he bought into a stock where management hadn't been in place for several years so that he was not looking just at the historical uh financials of the company mm-hmm. but also knowing that he had five or ten years or more usually a lot more of the same management team to know how they allocate capital and stuff because sometimes you get a new management team and it's totally different there were a couple cases where he went with like totally new management where he didn't know washington post is a classic example right yeah that, that surprised me mm-hmm. you know because um so he had the situation with dempster mills right which was very painful you know kind of mm-hmm. doing a bunch of different things obviously with berkshire he brought in a new ceo as well oh yeah um you know and now the way that he runs things obviously is he just likes it's very hands-off it sounds like mm-hmm. and he was like that too but i think his early years kind of shaped Look, he didn't like a whole town hating him for liquidating or that whole debacle with Dempster Mills. But the Washington Post kind of surprised me. It really did. Because how long was she running the company for? They're really, really running it very, very briefly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. She had a, a K Graham, Catherine Graham. I thought it was kind of cute it. too that you like give her all the confidence. And you yeah. Know, I mean, like he was very much like behind her. Yeah. And everything I, that's public about, you know, how he was to her in the beginning and stuff. Yeah. I mean, she was the owner operator. So she had already owned it. Um, technically her husband had owned it but like it was from her family so they they had owned it and then there was someone else who was running it i believe fritz bb was basically running things for a little while and then he, uh so at the point that buffett bought in it was clear that she was now really in charge of like running things day to day right yeah. and that's unusual and uh she hadn't had experience doing that right so that was very different you didn't know what she was going to do mm-hmm. and he was involved in like trying to discourage her from doing pricey acquisitions and trying to do more stock buybacks all that sort of thing but he did still have like a family it was still a family company mm-hmm. like he knew that it was her family that that owned it and that presumably her descendants were going to run it which did is what happened mm-hmm. and everything um so you did have an owner operator uh well the actual well, the paper itself is bezos yeah, yeah. yeah the company and the paper split up mm. yeah so they did a deal you know berkshire where they got they got back berkshire shares from it they got a, a television station from it some things like that and they split off the newspaper part of it into mm-hmm. a separate thing because the newspaper part had long been not the most 
profitable part of it, like Kaplan and a TV station and things like that were more profitable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, um, but same thing in that he had a pretty long, uh, past history to go on. Now, what you are also betting on in terms of using historical things that he did there and also with the Buffalo Evening News is in that case, there have been three papers in Washington, three major newspapers. One of them closed down. And so he knew that the two remaining papers of which the Washington Post was the stronger paper were going to have like explosive growth in terms of margins and things like that. Well, that was kind of like the Buffalo News as well, right? Yep. That was very much exactly. the same. Um, he thought it was going to become a monopoly paper, which it did. Mm-hmm. Um, now he had a more active role in making a monopoly paper there, but same idea. And that is true also in historical things, not just historical financials. I think people limit themselves too much like looking at 10-year financials and stuff and not just thinking about, okay, well, what will happen if you take out an entire competitor mm-hmm. or something like that? That's one of the most interesting things to me looking at like um when i get interested in a company is when there's been a real change in the competitive landscape mm-hmm. so you know um uh like we're like example would be like uh craft heinz or something the problem there is you can see so many different industries where this has happened where the increase in the power of the concentration in terms of who they're selling to retailers you know mm-hmm. um hurts you because that was an industry at one time whether you were selling ketchup or cereal or soup or whatever where you sold to so many small companies and now you're faced with selling a lot of it through Walmart and, and Target and Kroger and whatever that are pretty big buyers. Mm-hmm. And so you can he can use examples of that from industry after industry. Like a lot of the lessons you learn in like microeconomic lessons historically um, play again and again in, in the industries that you can see. So he could see, I'm sure, tons of different towns where it was all over the country where uh, – in 1940 or something, I don't remember how many there were, but it was very, very common to have two and three newspaper towns. Mm-hmm. And uh, by 1990, that was dead. You know, <laughs> there were very few towns that had two newspapers or something, yeah. and not and not one that wasn't a huge leading paper. Not a lot of competitive ones. So it was a pattern that was repeated everywhere across the country over you know half a century or something. And he could have seen that in town after town. And that's the same kind of thing. Like that's using historical information about how it works. In if you see the same sort of thing in industry after industry, you know. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I'd say that you use that same information the same way that you do the historical data. In fact, it's sometimes better to use that. Like you see the same pattern in terms of a competitor going out of business in the area or just different things about how they can cut things and stuff like that. I talked about the book uh, Railroader mm-hmm. that I read. And that's, Harrison. Yeah, and that's yeah, a really good yeah. example because you apply the same techniques to basically turning around different railroads and it's just operational stuff. You've seen the same thing in banking. I've seen many times where you go around buying one bank after another. You can apply the exact same techniques to taking out the excessive costs there Mm -hmm. and it's the same thing with railroads where so much of the reason why they're not making a lot of money is just certain inefficiencies operationally Mm -hmm. and the same management can come in and and take it out time and time again usually that's a lot easier like you can't count on this a management team to come in and like grow revenue and stuff predictably but you can count on management to repeat the same cost cutting thing and i mean you've read about like jamie diamond and and Mm -hmm. sandy Weil and what they did same sort of thing taking over one thing after another that you could tell had costs that could be taken out and they would take them out yeah yeah no, it was, it was good. And from reading that book that we referenced, it, Buffett was much more of a, a microcap activist investor than I think people like to remember. Yeah, that's true. But what's interesting about that in terms of like stability, right? So his, his thing in like the microcap stuff was the balance sheet. Sure. And yeah. the balance sheet is sort of, um, although different from the historical financials, betting on the balance sheet is a way to have a higher degree of predictability. So he would buy into things that like had barely made money for 10 years, yeah. but they had incredible amounts of book value. Like, I Or they didn't lose a ton of money. Yeah. In the, but yeah, in the case of Dempster Mill, I think they like basically didn't make much money, but didn't lose much money for about 10 years or something. And if I remember right, he bought it like 
20 some percent of book value. I would have guessed book value was like $80 a share and he bought in like, um, he started buying at like 15 or something, kept buying to 25 or something. Yeah. So if that's true, then he was buying it like a huge discount to net current asset value, which is somewhere in between there. But also just like a quarter of book value or something is very cheap to pay for anything that isn't like consistently losing, losing money. money. Yeah. And so you know that you could turn it around that anything, that's the idea of the it's cigar the butt. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it, one puff. Yeah. But it's so different from betting a company like we talk about like graph tech or something. He never bet on those kinds of situations. Mm -hmm. Where it was like a low PE or low EV to EBITDA situation, it was always a consistent earnings power mm -hmm. or book value, which in its own way and net current assets is sort of like having consistent earning power. It's the belief that you could turn it around so that it makes, like, demonstrably, if they ever made a decent return on equity, you can do the math and see that would be a really low PE on your stock, mm -hmm. you know? So it was just like, but the problem there was you had to actually cut the inventory and the yeah. stories about how hard it was to get that inventory. Yeah, the whole town loved him. <laughs> That's cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Mr. Jeff and myself. If this is the first time that you're tuning with us, leave us a rating review. That goes a very long way. We have 150, I don't even know, podcasts up. I've said it in every episode, but three a week. So that means for this time next year, we're going to have even more uh, pretty strong backlog. So if you like the work that we're doing here and you want to support us, leave us a rating review. Uh, that definitely goes a long way. Hit that subscribe button. We are going to be doing a lot more video stuff on YouTube in 2020. I am so pumped about it. Um, and then, of course, go to focuscompound.com. Uh, there is over 100 and, I don't know, 20 different stocks <laughs> written up on there. I got to get the exact number. On the stock A to Z section, Jeff's goal is to write up 250 plus write-ups this year. Okay. <laughs> We're going to continue saying it publicly, so <laughs> do it. <laughs> so be sure to sign up using the podcast promo code, which is podcast, and that will take the price from $60 a month to $50 a month. And then we do also have a discounted version for an annual membership. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning with us. Thank you so much for all the support. We're having a lot of fun doing this, and we have no plans of stopping. See you in the next podcast. Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk about actionable stock ideas, investing concepts, and the overall way that we think about investing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Go to focuscompound.com and enter in your email to get a free watch list from Jeff every other week. And be sure to check out all of our other work where Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. I upload how-to investing videos on YouTube, and we both manage capital for investors at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to follow along.